0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there.
1: It's Friday, March the 12th, and this is the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Lenehan. With me today are Jack Horgan-Jones and Pat Leahy. Hello to you both. Hello, Hugh. Bonjour. Jack, if there's a story of the week on what is, I think was a relatively quiet week, it's ongoing debates about the cost of living and price of stuff and whether the political system can do anything about it at all.
2: Yes, the price of stuff debate uh, rages on. You're right, it was a little bit uh, a little bit kind of all over the place in the news agenda this week. No big news story kind of uh, took over certainly from the point of view of politics. To the extent that one did, it was the ongoing debate over the cost of living or more specifically, the extent to which the government wants to or can influence the uh, the climb down in prices that people are now expecting to see given the fact that the the worst or the most kind of aggressive phase of inflation seems to be, at least abating, if not actually uh, reversing yet. Um, in the spotlight this week was the junior minister for for retail, Neil Richmond, Finneydale TD for Dublin Morath Down, who convened a, a retail forum, the, the grandiose titled retail forum, on uh, Wednesday. Now this is a political trick, as as old as The Hills, um, roughly equivalent to a kind of perp walk where you bring in the people who are seen to be responsible or at least semi-responsible for the bad thing and you give them a bit of a bollocking and you hopefully generate some some good news headlines for yourself. The problem was, I think, that it kind of suffered from being the only centre of gravity, really, to the, the news agenda politically for the week because the, the retail forum is not the world's most powerful or important uh, setting. Um, I think that's basi- putting it mildly. Yeah, isn't it? it's putting it somewhat diplomatically. It's basically a talking shop, um, and when it comes to actually the big stick that the government may carry uh, when it comes to coercing retailers to putting down prices, um, they don't carry much of a big stick at all. The the one power that they that they do really have, which was referred to early and often in the week is uh, powers under the 2007 legislation to set uh, a price ceiling on certain staple goods. Now, that only occurs in the context of an emergency, so kind of like a war or something like COVID, you know. And while they talked about it early and often, they started towards the middle of the week when the retail forum kind of came into view, uh, they started talking about it less. They started talking less about the big stick that they carried and more about the fact that, you know, maybe the stick isn't that big after all or we don't really want to use the stick at all. Or they Um, don't have a stick. Or they don't have a stick, yeah. (laughs) So they kind of, by the time the, the retail forum came around, you know, It was more an advertisement for the government's lack of of immediate powers and certainly what the opposition suggested was the government's lack of interest in giving itself more powers or giving the regulators more powers to actually tackle high retail prices or high grocery prices. And I think that because that dynamic emerged, it ended up fitting more into a series of stories where I suppose the coalition or politics more generally kind of advertises its own inadequacies. So like when it comes to something like, uh, you know, mortgage interest rates, obviously that's something that uh, is set by the ECB. Uh, and while we can kind of moan about it a little bit here, the government hasn't shown much interest, uh, probably for good reason, in uh, mortgage interest schemes that might give uh, ha- households a, a break from that. Similarly, uh, energy bills, you know, which is something that they've they've certainly shifted gear on rhetorically and ministers are talking tough. But in terms of actually forcing them down, you know, they are more or less regurgitating the viewpoint of uh, of utility companies who say they're still working through their hedging arrangements. And there's a lag between wholesale prices that they pay and retail prices coming down. So I think that, look, Look, it's in the same space as, as as governments often find themselves when it comes to tackling a chronic policy problem, which is you end up merely describing it or, you know, t- talking about the shape and size of it as opposed to being seen to, to do anything about it. And that that's, I think, a, a politically dangerous place to be for as long as the issue persists. The hope is that, like, you know, the natural swing of inflation means that we have uh, topped out and, you know, it may actually see prices come down a little bit towards the back end of this year. But I think that the more fundamental problem is that those prices are probably locked in. Liv Riker, last night, the Taoiseach on Virgin Media, talking about how after a period of rapid inflation, things don't go back to the way they were before so now this is the water that you swim and things are just more expensive and that brings into, into view the more kind of complex question of what do you do come budget time because what the government has been effective at doing is is backstopping and providing you know a financial uh, you know auxiliary reserve tank to, to households as opposed to fixing the market so it begs the question of what they're going to do what the pressures will be on them come budget time and you know how that kind of matches up against all the kind of fiscal prudence stuff uh, you know what do we do the surplus stuff that we talked about uh, in recent days.
1: Yeah, I mean, Pat, I would, I would distinguish between the energy issue which arose immediately after in the, in, in the course of, of the Ukraine war in particular and which one would hope those prices will come down at some point as as we see commodity uh, energy prices around the world are going down at the moment and that filters through and maybe you can try and encourage our, our local energy companies to, to let it filter through a bit more. But as Jack says, you know, prices in the supermarkets, you know, inflation may be easing but the prices aren't going to come down is it beyond the wit of the political system to take us as adults and just tell us the truth about that?
0: Yes. I mean, it seems to me that uh, it was Teddy Roosevelt who said that the US should talk softly and carry a big stick. Well, the government seems to talk loudly and carry a tiny stick, so to speak, <laughs> uh, on this. And, you know, there are, there are mechanisms if the government wishes to control prices. As Jack alluded to, but they are, you know, to be used only in the most extreme circumstances. And were the government to attempt to use them, you know, in the current circumstances, it would almost certainly find itself the subject of, uh, of of legal challenges, uh, which makes it, you know, all the more curious that, uh, you know, that government insists on, you know, holding this forum, talking up its chances, and then sending the, uh, you know, sending the supermarkets away with a, a flea in their ear, and then everybody just kind of looks the other way while nothing happens. Interestingly, you know, this recognition seems to extend across the, the, the political divide. I heard, uh, and I'll be writing a little bit about this tomorrow, but um, I heard Louise O'Reilly, uh, who is, the, the Sinn Féin Enterprise spokesman, I know Wilting Violet, she, um, but she was being asked uh, on RTE the other day, you know, what would you do? What would you do? And the best she could come up with was, well, you know, we, we would set targets. And, you know, she didn't, you know, resile at all from lambasting the government for its performance. But when asked what she would do, I guess she was, you know, wary of giving any hostages to Fortune and, uh and just kept repeating that they would set targets without actually being drawn on what those targets would be or what the enforcement mechanisms might be to ensure that they were, uh, that they were achieved. You know, look, everybody is, um, everybody is slightly riled by uh, higher prices. What can the government do about it? Very little. It can throw some money at us in the budget. And I think that's what it'll do.
1: So, Jack, I mean, the real, the real problem for the government here, as you say, comes later in the year when people start asking... Um, for measures in the budget of one sort or another to, to to deal with this kind of crisis. And that can manifest itself in all kinds of ways. Our lead story in the Irish Times this morning is about um, very vociferous complaints from nursing homes who have residents funded by the, the Fair Deal scheme, which is a way in which the state's events private nursing homes. But they point out that they get a lot less money than publicly funded nursing homes and that it's, um, that it's gone completely out of whack over the last few years and i think there's a nursing home which is now which is now closing down those are the kinds of pressures that are going to happen across the economy in this kind of an environment after two or three years of relatively high inflation
2: yeah but i think that inflation probably won't be quite as bad come budget time this year as it was last year um remember just at the tail end of august uh or maybe into September last year, it was around the time of the Fine uh, think-in down in Kilkenny, and there was a ma- major shock through the system because the futures prices for oil and gas just went absolutely haywire. Now, they had been haywire, but they went, you know, above and beyond. And the projections that the government were getting in on uh, household bills over the winter, one senior source described to me at the time, were more like a mortgage payment. Um, and it didn't quite come to pass, but something quite like it came to pass. But what that triggered was... Um, and what it went in tandem with was, was yet another Bonanza Corporation tax take and what it triggered was the, the massive escalation really of supports that were outlined in the last budget, a bunch of them being one-off but most importantly being the, the 600 per household in three 200 euro credits, electricity credits across the winter. Um, so I think the question will be, if we don't get a, a similar kind of shock, um, to what extent will the government uh, actually... Replicate that? Uh, And to what extent will this kind of uh, ad hoc, um, you know, goody giveaway once off payment become part of the budgetary furniture, which is a more kind of long or medium term question? Uh, And and how will it marry those obligations to um, the demands that I think would be actually louder this year for? Real and lasting uh, and and you know permanent changes to things like welfare and pension rates, which obviously went up quite significantly last year if memory serves the weekly uh the weekly uh, sum went up by twelve euros but that was askance from the impact of inflation uh, it would have had to go up twenty euros to keep up with inflation so uh, the, the 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 view of those who advocate for higher pension and welfare payments is that we're already at a bit of a dog leg we're already running to catch up with the impact of last year and even if inflation is is less uh, than it was last year, nonetheless you still have to compensate for that. So I think that, you know, there'll be they'll be under pressure on, on both those both those fronts. And I think that actually um the the fight that they'll be the fight that they'll be most pressed on will be to keep away from those permanent increases. Um because I think that in the final reckoning, particularly as as, you know, emergency style or really acute pressures from inflation kind of fade to the extent that, you know, people might like like the the prospect of people not being able to pay a bill might might abate a little bit. Uh ward, warding off those calls for permanent increases will be the row of of this kind of late late summer. Uh, early early autumn. It um, should be said there there will be increases, but it's the scale of them that they'll be they'll be warding off.
1: I wonder though, Pat. I mean, this whole business of one-off payments as opposed to committing to you know to paying things forever uh, sort of emerged a lot during the COVID era, and the government's been quite fond of it over the over the last couple of years. There must be a limit to it. At some point, you can't just bake it into the system forever, can you? That you know, here, here's your one-off payments for next year. At some point, people will start expecting that they're always oh, Look at get the Christmas it. bonus. Let's Let's jump
2: year. in, but like I mean, look at the Christmas bonus. You know, I mean, that kind of.
0: Well, that's that's yeah, that's the point. Christmas bonus isn't is never budgeted for. It's just given at the end of the year. Of course, it was a period when uh, the Christmas when was bonus fun. was diminished. Yeah, during the um, uh, during the, the the late era of uh, of austerity, but. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't overestimate the um, the extent to which there's a lot of long-term thinking going in on this, uh, Hugh. You know, I mean, as Jack says, there will be spending increases in the budget. I'd be surprised if they aren't, you know, similar in scale to last year, which, you know, let us not forget, was by historical comparisons an extremely generous budget, about 7 billion euros in recurring budget day measures, but there was an additional what really turbocharged it was there was an additional four billion euros in uh in 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 one off measures. Now you know this is uh a repeat of this I think would we'll be frowned upon uh, at at EU level because it is after all working against EU monetary policy or ECB monetary policy which is you know, to take money out of the uh, uh, to take money out of the economy in a bid to to curb uh, inflation, but you know when I don't think it'll be specifically prohibited by EU rules, and when um, when faced with the choice of annoying some. People in Frankfurt are annoying some people in their constituencies. Um, I think
1: uh, I think the government is likely to choose the former. All right. I think our next story uh, is very different. Um, I find it absolutely fascinating, not just because of the the details of the story itself, but because I think of what it reveals about the way Ireland uh, really works. Uh, it comes from our colleague Conor Gallagher, who is has written a book about the history of Irish neutrality, and I think we've all been aware, at least I have been, that. Somehow or other, the Irish state, gave a, with a nod and a wink, relied upon the British armed forces to, uh, you know, patrol along the northern edge, the northwestern edge of Ireland and the Atlantic. Um, and it was more than a nod and a wink. It was a secret memor- memorandum, which, which, which Connor has discovered, Pat, which has been in existence since 1953. So almost 70 years, Irish governments have been, um, have been signing this thing it's kind of fascinating. We
0: love an old secret memorandum, you know. Uh indeed dates from I think yep 19, 1953. So when the young Queen Elizabeth was being crowned in Westminster Abbey, uh Irish and British uh civil servants were huddled in a room agreeing this secret memo or something uh, uh, or something like that. Um I I I think the reason why this is I mean as you say we, we've always kind of suspected this for uh, for for years the reason it is of i suppose added political potency now is that i think irish neutrality is kind of is in focus at home and abroad in a way that it hasn't been and that's because the entire security and defence context in europe has been utterly upended by the russian invasion of Ukraine. You have you know, Sweden and Finland, formerly neutral countries, joining NATO. You have Germany uh, you know, upending up decades of precedent by agreeing to supply arms uh, to Ukraine, uh, putting in a 100 billion euro program of investment in its, o- in its own armed forces. And all across Europe, as a result, of uh, the invasion of Ukraine defense postures. And, you know, if you want to find out how, you know, immediate an issue this is for lots of people, talk to some people from Central and European uh, countries. Uh, that are much much closer to Russia as uh, uh, than, than than we are, and have a history of unwelcome intrusions from that uh, from that quarter. Talk to them about how seriously uh, they uh, they take it, and I can tell you it's a bit of an uh, it's a bit of an eye opener. Um, and as a result of that, I think that Ireland's kind of nod and wink approach to international defence cooperation and our neutrality, under which we, I suppose, existed. And indeed, prospered under the protection of the NATO military umbrella since uh, since the nineteen fifties, without overtly contributing anything to it. I think that's I think that's under increased focus now, and it is, of course, you know, the right of this country and any other country to have its own foreign policy, and if we so choose to have that as entirely militarily un uh, unaligned, but. That's not really what we've been pursuing uh, for the last half a century, you know, um, and 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 I think that what one of the things Connor's story does, and and I'm sure his forthcoming book will will do, is maybe to you know to force us to face up to the reality of how our neutrality is actually operated, and to what uh, to what. You know, a a true neutrality might actually mean, which would be something very different to what we currently operate.
1: Well, Jack, you're not entirely militarily unaligned if you're relying on another state for um, for a a very significant portion of your defence, are you? I suppose you're not. You, Um, I mean,
2: this is this debate, as as Pat has articulated at length, there has been going on uh, since the 1950s, but has kind of uh, ebbed and, and flowed depending on, on the overriding mood music and the geopolitical situation and, and it's kind of crystallised things in the last year or so. I just, I don't know where this ends up really. Like it strikes me that about a year ago we were on this podcast talking about how uh, the conversation about Irish neutrality would change um, and, you know, it would the, the current position was not sustainable. And since then... The conversation doesn't seem to have changed that much. We seem to still be having different versions of the same chat. Um, you know, the the Tániste has outlined this new uh forum for discussing uh Irish, I suppose, neutrality and and and, and you know, security policy.
1: That's the second forum of the podcast so far. I yeah, that tells us something. It, it, it
2: feels a it feels a little like a kind of bit of a, a bit of a kick to touch and and probably oh, surely not. Surely not. <laughs> probably a hope underpinning this that rather than actually. Having a, a substantive uh, discussion about this, notwithstanding Connor's book, which I know t- he was too modest to, to talk about in his own copy, but we'll we'll give it a sufficient plug here. But well, Dermot
0: Ferrier was plugging the beginning of the morning, exactly. So, you know, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, that, but but you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Dermot Farriter, uh piece because he points out that like the the ambivalence of Irish neutrality has has a long history and it stretches back really to the foundation of the state and shortly thereafter. And um, so I think that. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, we're all talking about this a little bit more and we all have very kind of gravely intoned that, you know, it's a big moment for Irish neutrality. It seems that there is certainly on some levels a desire to kind of let's see how this one play, plays out and see if we might not kind of hold tight to that ambivalence that has always suited us so well. Um, but, you know, the question is whether whether that is, whether that is a, a maintainable position, um, like just reading Connie's piece from, I think it was Monday now this stage, like I like I knew that the Irish Air Corps was under equipped, but like I had no idea really just quite how under equipped it was and the fact that like we can take on a helicopter, maybe, with the the height of the the hardware that we possess, but but very little more than that. And what passes for a combat aircraft can't really fly effectively above ten thousand feet. I mean, that's <laughs> that, is, that is not great. <laughs> That's my defence analysis. <laughs>
0: if we were attacked with a fleet of uh, World War One biplanes we might be able to defend ourselves but anything beyond
1: that would be problematic. Funny you should mention that Pat because the Dermot Ferreter piece is is fascinating in lots of ways and he, he writes about Erskine Childers who was specifically part of the delegation to London that negotiated the treaty because of his military knowledge because he had been a member of the British Armed Forces and specifically a precursor, one of the precursors of the RAF so he knew what he was talking about. Now of course not much more than a year or so after that he ended up being executed by the new free state government um, during the Civil War which was ultimately an argument about national sovereignty and the limitations of it vis-a-vis uh, vis-a-vis the United Kingdom so there's a sense almost of things coming full circle there's lots of interesting stuff actually in the, in the newspaper this week about about those times including that the British offered to provide bombers to bomb the Four Courts with Irish colours on them and um, um, an offer which which was rejected, although I think uh, the Free State did take its artillery um, to, to shell the four courts uh, in the end. So all of this goes back a terribly, terribly long way. But at one point in his piece, uh, Pat, Dermot Ferriter talks about how the Department of Foreign Affairs position has always been, it always refers to um, our traditional position of neutrality which of course has no constitutional basis or anything like that. I'm not even sure it has a legal basis. They kind of describing it as such feels a little bit like it's something like Ill pipes or like, you know, saying, saying thank you yeah. to the driver when you're getting <laughs> off the bus or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean,
0: in, in practice, our traditional policy of military neutrality, to give it its full title, Hugh, has actually meant whatever the government of the day Wants it to mean. But I don't think we should underestimate the public attachment to an albeit kind of not entirely fully formed idea of what neutrality should mean. And opinion polls are very clear about this, and we've done several of them ourselves. There is a very large majority of people who are against joining NATO, are against. Uh, having uh, an EU army, however you might d- define that, and are very attached to this hazy idea of military neutrality, however, uh, however they they define it. That having been said, right, there are two things I think that are pressing in on this uh, at the moment. One is the change security uh, and and defence. Context in Russia uh, or in in Europe, rather, as a result of the uh, the war in Ukraine that we referred to earlier, and increasingly we talk to politicians and officials uh, who are in meetings in the EU. There is a, a perception, you know, that Irish neutrality is not so much one of those quirks that people put up with uh, with. Amongst other member states, and more uh, uh, looks looks a bit more like reloading to at least some people in the EU. The other thing I think that has changed the context on it is um, the fact that you know we know we now know that Russian naval exercises seem to be fairly regular off the west coast, and there is a growing fear that the internet cables that link the uh, US and the EU are being targeted for potential sabotage by uh, by Russia, and that is something that. Yeah, no, the EU, I think, um, is going to require action on.
2: Notwithstanding the fact that I, I spent a couple of minutes there saying nothing's going to change, um, I do think that there is a chance that one of the kind of pillars of, of Irish defence policy could be unwound as a result of all this, um, and that's the triple lock. Uh, which is not a constitutional demand. Just explain what the triple lock so is. So, triple lock basically means that you can't deploy more than a certain number of Irish troops. I think it's 12 overseas. Handful, yeah. Uh, with Without three things happening at a UN Security Council resolution, a formal decision uh, by the government and approval by the Dáil. And and the first of those uh, things, the Security Council resolution has been targeted initially by Fine Gael as not being... Kind of match fit or, or or fit for purpose anymore because Russia is a is a permanent holder of a seat on the UN Security Council and uh, is obviously seen certainly in the context of Ukraine but in in a more general sense in global affairs as, as a bad as a bad actor these days therefore it's not a sustainable position so goes the criticism anyway that we would allow a bad actor or a bad faith actor uh, or someone who has unleashed a war in Europe to effectively have a say on our deployment of troops and our defence policy. And that is a position that it seems both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have. Um, and because it's not a constitutional requirement, because I think the, I think the legislation is, is quite old, but I think it's been modified as recently as the 1990s, I suspect that there could be some kind of change there which allows a more kind of full Throat of participation in uh, whatever security, whatever kind of supranational security arrangements uh, emerge from the post Ukraine shakeup. And this is something that the Taoiseach has been kind of more more vocal on, uh, talking about how he wants to see Ireland play an increased part in whatever kind of European security structures emerge, uh, falling some way short of, of joining anything like NATO, but certainly. Putting our best foot forward, and on that front, so that's something that I think I think could be a lasting, uh, a lasting uh, legacy of this. Uh if if, if if they actually have the political appetite for it and if, I suppose, the Greens uh, were willing to, to get on board with it. I'm not sure exactly their position on
1: No, we'll leave, we'll leave it there, but I think that is a subject we'll be returning to. Uh, before we take a break, uh, just to remind you that to read Dermot Ferreter's article today or Conor Gallagher's uh, really interesting article earlier in the week or indeed lots of other coverage of that and many other issues, you'd need to be a subscriber to Times.com. It's very easy to do that. You just go to iristimes.com slash subscribe and you can sign up there. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back, Pat. I've been observing the uh, progress of this um, hate crime uh, bill through the Dáil and the Shannon, and it's quite interesting where criticism of it is coming from and the debate over it. Uh, quite different parts of the political spectrum. Paul Murphy was of People Before Profit was very critical of it in the Dole. Michael McDowell was asking questions about it in the in the Shannon. Are they justified?
0: Well, they're certainly justified in asking questions about it. That's their purpose, I guess, as uh, as legislators. There are very few issues I think you find that unify Matty McGran, Paul Murphy, but on this one they are uh, ad idem. Now the the bill uh, is, uh, as you say, on its way through the Oraktes. It has passed all stages in the doll. It now goes to the uh, to the Shannad. It's the um, hate speech and hate crime law. In actual fact, it so what it what it does. Very, very briefly is it um, it rewrites the old incitement to hatred legislation and incorporates uh, and incorporates that making prosecutions for incitement to hatred easier but there must be incitement to hatred incitement to violence uh, in that and it uh, it introduced the idea of a hate crime where an existing crime is made more serious by the Uh, by the application of hate, by the presence of hate towards somebody who has a protected characteristic. And that's important. So protected characteristic is race, colour, nationality, religion, national or ethnic, origin, descent, gender, sex characteristic, sexual orientation, or disability. And it's the gender thing, I think, that is going to get some attention in the Shannon, And this is on the back of a letter written by uh, Michael McDougall, uh, Senator, former, Attorney General, former Minister for Justice, who's written to Minister for Justice Simon Harris, asking for clarification of a couple of things before the bill gets to the floor of the Shannon, which I understand is due to happen in uh, about two weeks or so. And he has pointed out uh, something that I uh, I confess I didn't notice in looking at this uh, in in the doll stages and of which there was very little debate. In fact, I could find just one reference to it uh, in in the various doll stages uh, of the bill, and, and that is that it appears to expand the definition of of gender. And so he compares it to the the Gender Recognition Act, which establishes in law the right. Of a person to identify as either male or, or, or female, and if they do so, then they are recognised. If they wish to do so, then that can be recognised in law, and that's already established uh, in law. But the definition of gender in the new bill, which will become the the Hate Crime and uh, Incitement to Hatred Act, if, uh, if 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 passed, the definition of gender in that is much broader, and it. It 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 says, as best to read it out, I guess, uh, from uh, McDougal's letter, it says, gender means the gender of a person or the gender of a person or the gender which a person expresses as the person's preferred gender or with which the person identifies and includes transgender and a gender other than those of male or female. So... The law, the, the proposed law, then appears to expand, as I say, the definition of uh, of gender to include transgender and include other genders or genders other than male or female. And Michael McDool has written to the Minister of Justice say, "Could you please tell us what these are uh, before we have uh, before we have the debate?" And there it lies. As I, I don't think any reply is issued uh, to Senator McDool yet, but uh, uh, I do think that this aspect of the bill which as i say was only focused on very briefly during the um uh, during the doll debates when simon harris declined amendments from amongst others uh, aeon or uh, reardon but in which he said according to the transcript which i've read that it, it he is deliberately expanding that that idea of gender but i think that will be uh, very much subject for for debate and uh and and Simon Harris, I think well uh, if it is he who does the um uh, who does that legislative debate will have to uh,
1: expand on what he means by that. So there's a couple of things I should say about that, Jack. One is that we did a podcast uh, a few months ago with Professor Owen Odell of Trinity College, where we went through some of those issues. So should, uh, we can refer people back to that for some some more detail on on the legislation and his view on it. We should say also that Paul Murphy's objection was on a was on a separate issue, which was a, a, a question of people holding material deemed to be hate speech and having to prove themselves that that was not intended for dissemination. Uh, an important legal point. And we should also mention that uh, unlike most uh, legislation in the Oireachtas. This has come to the attention of no less than both Elon Musk and Donald Trump Jr. So there's a bang of culture wars off the whole thing, as there is with this, this subject of speech and the constraints of speech very often. But this specific one, it does seem strange to me, I don't know what you think, that an expansion of, of the definition of gender in law, which is something one can debate and one can pass or not pass, as the case may be, should occur in this particular instance rather than specifically in in, in legislation Specifically related to gender, in other words, an amendment presumably to the to the legislation that was passed on gender a few years ago, because it's a it, it, it's quite a change of the law, and it's a strange way to do it. I think that is the salient point, actually, Hugh. And in, I, I haven't
2: covered uh, the hate speech legislation uh, as much as Pat, so I can't profess the same degree of familiarity with it. But I think that the key takeaway from this for me is that you know, the the kind of politics of, of culture wars or identity politics or whatever construction you like to put in it seems to be coming closer to uh, to, to the kind of centre of the political discourse in Ireland. And it seems to me that something that is is not directly related to uh, the gender issue um, or maybe is adjacent to it in some ways or kind of brushes past it, such as this piece of legislation, can all of a sudden become kind of Turbocharged with all the, uh, the 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 baggage um, and all the kind of divisive uh, forces that tend to characterise the debate around around gender politics. Yeah, like you see
1: no shortage of people. You find no problem finding people online who will claim that this is the end of Irish democracy if this legislation is passed. For example,
2: exactly. And and look, that's that's an interesting point as well. That a lot of this kind of bifurcation and uh, you know the the. The, the viciousness of the debate often is more visible online than it is in real life. But uh, I think that, you know, that can be a bit of a comfort blanket sometimes as well to, to pretend that this only plays out online because, of course, it doesn't. It may be more visible online, it may be more vicious online, but it plays out in very real ways in the policymaking space and in both houses of the Oireachtas, as we can see. Um, so, you know, it will be fascinating to see how... Uh, Simon Harris, if if he is still the, the Minister of Justice who confronts this, how he engages with it, whether he responds to uh, to Michael McDowell and the nature of his of his response. Uh, not only for the purposes of the hate speech legislation, but also whether it sets a kind of framework for, you know, how do you engage with these these issues as and when they emerge in the policymaking space.
1: But it is still, just just to reiterate, it, Pat, is it not a strange way to go about that in the context of this legislation, rather than specifically in legislation that pertains to the subject of gender?
0: Yeah, I don't know what the rationale uh, to it is. I mean, the just looking at what Simon Harris said uh, in the the language is constantly evolving. The approach of taking in this bill attempts to future-proof this legislation to a degree by defining gender to include genders other than male or female. But because he is essentially adding these to those list of protected characteristics which have special protection in law, it, it seems to me that it requires it requires a bit more definition than other you know than than something which suggests that other genders or other definitions of gender may appear at some stage in the future and they too will have protection uh of uh, of the law so um yeah it is it is a, you're right it is a peculiar way uh to 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 go about it um but i guess we'll see what happens when it comes to the uh when it comes to the Shannon. um at which point we will be even more interested than we normally are in Shannon debates.
1: So, Jack, speaking of the shannads, um we were looking at uh, what articles caught our interest this week and you were looking at a piece by Ted Smith, who's a, a prominent figure in Irish-American circles and he was writing about a subject which pops up a lot on the Irish Times letters page and sometimes on the Irish Times opinion pages, which is about votes for the Irish diaspora.
2: Yeah, uh, so Ted Smith had an op-ed piece in on uh, Tuesday. And, um, Talking about Irish America and the importance of the relationship and and all the rest of it. Um, And then towards the end, it gets into this issue, um, which is one that, as you say, kind of pops up from time to time in the debate of, of how to accommodate or whether you should accommodate uh, the diaspora uh, within within the parliament here. Uh, and it's something that I've always been extremely nervous about and, and kind of had a, a, a bit of a an aversion to just on the basic principle that like people living outside a jurisdiction, uh, it seems odd to me that they would be giving a say effectively on the laws that...
1: Although lots of other countries do it.
2: Lots of other countries do it, but there's different ways of doing it, which I think where where, where we should focus this debate. And... Um, just to finish the the point that you know someone living outside the jurisdiction having an an impact or a say on the laws that uh, that that rule those who live within the jurisdiction seems uh, strange to me. Uh, it seems it seems to me. To be, you know, also susceptible to to the whims of of you know a polity that exists overseas, and the political predilections for someone uh, of, of someone who maybe hasn't lived in the jurisdiction for a long time, or left the jurisdiction as a baby, or something like that, or, just, or or never
1: lived here at or all, or never because lived you can at get all. Irish citizenship, exactly,
2: drinking. exactly that, you know, and and you know, so for example, uh you know, like the constitutional question will be an interesting one, and and where and the, the distance perhaps between the the outlook of irish america on the constitutional question uh, and the outlook of people living in ireland which i would imagine is is significantly more nuanced um but i think he's 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 describing an idea whereby one of the the panels in the Shannad might be given over to representation i can't remember whether he said it would be specifically for irish america or for irish people overseas and, and that is is an idea that i think um it goes some way towards a satisfactory uh, to addressing this issue satisfactorily because it, it stops short of giving, you know, you know, Brooklyn a say in who gets uh, elected in Dublin Bay North. Um, but does go some way to accommodating the fact that the Irish diaspora is part of, you know, Ireland in in the broadest sense. But it doesn't totally kind of defang it and also cheapen the, the, the presidency a little bit by saying, oh, let's give all the citizens overseas a, a vote in, in in the presidential election because, sure, the subtext of that is it's just a free shot anyway. It's not really a ceremonial office anyway, so it doesn't really matter. So I think it's a, it's an accommodation that I think, other jurisdictions have have done effectively. I remember uh, during COVID, we were, when we when we brought in the um, the mandatory hotel quarantine, I was talking to some of the French parliamentarians who whose constituency is French people living overseas, and they sit in the assembly and you know they don't have a, a seat you know in France but they represent the interests of people living overseas and and they were advocating for french people living in ireland whose travel rights had been curtailed in this in this instance and i thought that that was you know a very useful and and real application of of that structure Whereby they were they were actually advocating effectively both in France and in Ireland for a distinct group. And I think that, you know, thinking closely and, and cleverly about a solution to this um is something that we have to do. And I think that the Ted Smith piece gets us some way down that road. Um and and you know, the 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 idea of adapting the fairly antiquated kind of panel system in the Shannon to something more current or an idea that has more purchase, uh, such as allowing the diaspora an input, if not uh, an outsized
1: uh, impact on Irish politics. I think is something. Ridiculous. Oh, yeah, yeah, it should, strikes me you could do a, a lot more with the Shannon than just do this. Should have a podcast um, um, like on, on the around the record. But they're, they're not they're not particularly positive. Just in case anu- annual annual Shannon yeah. debate, but <laughs> we'll do a three part special on that. We know our listeners love that. Pat, just one point. I mean, the real politic of this is, it seems to me, is that there's. Always been a terror of the actual numbers here because Ireland was a country which had a much larger immigrant population in the past. There's a hint in what Jack says that they might have, they might be a bit more green tinged in the uh, in the way that they vote on constitutional issues. And then it, it raises the question of the uh, the many, many hundreds of thousands of Irish citizens who live north of the border.
0: Yep, there are the two things: there's um, citizens in the north, and there is the uh, the, the just a vast scale of the numbers abroad. And we go away, we give out Irish citizen shit. Ch- Citizenship, kind of, almost, almost anybody who wants it, you know. So, uh, so obviously you've got yeah, you've got difficulties there. But um, I, but I'd save all my thoughts on that for our Shannad Reform Special.
1: Our seven, our seven part, seven series. part yeah. series. Uh, it's moved already up from three to seven. Um, Pat, what, what have you been reading this week?
0: Yeah the the piece I um I picked was from yesterday's paper by Janan Ganesh whose uh, column we we um syndicate from the Financial Times and he was talking about the, the end of the the end of the pandemic and uh standing back from it he was uh, his his case is actually that uh, you know the 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 west did pretty well uh in the in the pandemic all told and um it's an interesting piece. I, uh, I look, uh, he says, if, if the future inquiries bear out the old Gene Kirkpatrick line, that we, will, uh, we may have to f- face the truth about ourselves, no matter how pleasant it is. Um, I'm not sure about, uh, I, I, I'm not sure he's right about uh, everything, but it's an interesting piece. And of course, we all look forward to the COVID inquiry whenever, uh, whenever it happens. Uh, if, only, if only someone had written a book about it that we could use as a primer for the, uh, for, for, for the COVID, COVID inquiry.
2: Yeah, Jack, can you recommend anything? Uh, yeah, I recommend Conor Gallagher's book. <laughs> <laughs> no, buy my book. One, point, my book.
0: To make, one point to make uh, on, uh, on that, actually, is that uh, I think when the COVID inquiry comes, um, that it shouldn't uh, limit itself to government. I think we should also have maybe a look at um, the enthusiastic zero-coviders, and uh, and their role in uh, in, in
1: no, I, th- the I absolutely I agree. I think we should we should we should look at absolutely. Everything. I think
2: there should be a module on the media, and I think that I should get two weeks off to prepare for my testimony, <laughs> Pat. What do you think? Well, for two weeks, we expect really good jokes in your testimony. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, uh, finally, uh, speaking of the media, my article of the week is actually a live article. I like live articles. I like the way that they're sort of a pure play for the online part of what we do. They never appear in the newspaper, but they do something that regular newspaper articles don't don't do Laura Slattery who is a long time lover of Eurovision was doing the live article on the semi-final which took place in Liverpool on Tuesday Eurovision was obviously the biggest story of the week and continues to be the final is uh, is tomorrow night and we'll be watching it in my house anyway um, Laura has a Great turn of phrase. It's a really dry, witty piece. When you get a really good live article like that, you can read it back afterwards and still enjoy it, which I noticed that our readers were doing because it was still ranking in our top 10 24 hours uh, later. I'll be writing about Eurovision and the monarchy tomorrow, so there's my plug as well. (laughs) We will leave it there anyway for today. Thanks very much indeed to Jack and to Pat. Thanks to our producer, Declan Colin, our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon after the weekend. Enjoy Eurovision. Uh, Talk to you then.